Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and today I have a special guest, Clint Hermes. Welcome, Clint. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, you know, this program is arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. And uh, I've never talked to someone who does exactly what, what you do. You're an attorney. And uh, off your website, Biomedical Research Regulatory Matters. So I know there is such a thing. I've, uh, you know, attended the IRB when I've had to get a clinical research uh, protocol approved. But uh, I know your, your firm also deals with international. I mean, to me, that just sounds like a giant headache. Not only, you know, do you have city, county, state, federal, and now you're talking about different countries, different languages, different sets of rules and regulations. So that's what we're going to talk about. But before we get there, I want you to tell me who you are, what's your background, and how did you get, you know, into this line of work? Yeah, sure. I mean, so so um, when so so I, I you know, a little bit of context. Um, law schools don't, you know, at least or at least in the 1990s, law schools don't really didn't really have a mechanism to specialize, and so and, and particularly in your first the first part of your JD program is entirely set in stone. Um, um, you know, and I guess by comparison, the, the post-JD training of a lawyer is not nearly as structured as the post-MD training is of a doctor. Um, and so you sort of go into law school knowing that when you come out the other end, there's, you, you're, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of flexibility in terms of what you might be able to do. And so when I went into law school, I really actually had no idea uh, what it was that I wanted to do. And I, I went to... Um, a number of different career panels on, you know, corporate and litigation and intellectual property. And I ended up going to one on um, uh, healthcare. And there, and there was one of the attorneys who spoke at the healthcare career panel um, had this really, had a, this really fascinating portfolio of, of the sort of things that she dealt with and, you know, biomedical, uh, bioethical issues and, you know, genetics and stem cell and organ transplantation. And actually now she's the CEO of the New England Organ Bank. Um, and so I decided that after, I, I decided essentially that that was what I wanted to do. And so after law school, I, 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 I did an internship and then ended up getting a job at the law firm that she was at. Um, and I, that was where I sort of started my career and sort of getting into this um, field of, of the regulation of biomedical research. And then ultimately I, ended up working at two, you know, different academic medical centers, in, including St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where you are. Oh, yeah, right down the street. Um, right. And that that's a very impressive and, uh, organization with uh, lots of talented uh, people. So who would be, for example, your one of your clients? Who would hire you? <laughs> uh, sure. So the the types of really the types of clients that I would do work for are um, really any any organization that is involved in biomedical research, and so that could be 
a drug or device company that is sponsoring a, a clinical trial. Um, it could be a university that has research going on in its labs. It could be, you know, obviously teaching hospitals that are the sites of a lot of research, but also even, you know, a lot of, a lot of research nowadays is being done in smaller physician practice settings. Um, and so really any of those. So, all right, well, let's just dive right into it. In my experience, I did clinical research and development of epilepsy drugs. I'm an epilepsy specialist, and I would have to go to the IRB with this protocol, and they would you know, want 4,000 copies and spread it around, and it would take months. And then, you know, this was a really a standard study that's being done at 30 sites across the U.S., and I, I really couldn't understand it. It's like every single site had to go through their own IRB, you know, and, yep. and, and recreate yep. the wheel. And the whole idea was, you know, for, you know, is it an appropriate study and are they protect, you know, there's this idea of human subject abuse that I want to talk to you a little bit. I mean, is that really still a problem? You know, that studies that go through pharmaceutical, I mean, that they, that they don't watch out for the safety of the patients. I mean, isn't that sort of like, you know, fasten your seatbelt, you know, what, I mean, a, a checklist thing? I mean, is it still important to go through all that? Yeah, so, um, you know, so I think there's a there's a few different issues to unpack there. I mean, I, you know, so, uh, so I want to acknowledge that that you know from the standpoint of an investigator who has a who has an idea about a study they want to do or has been approached by a company and wants to participate as a site in the study, um, the 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 regulatory burdens associated with that may may seem significant and in some cases just sort of nonsensical. I mean, so you gave a really good example, I think, of. Um, you know, multi-site study where each site is having to use its own IRB. Um, and in fact, actually, there have been recent regulatory changes at the federal level that in many cases now mandate a single central IRB for multi-site studies. Um, so that is now sort of the default for all federally funded studies and is becoming, you know, I think pretty a pretty standard approach for um, for non-federally funded studies as well, um, because there's not particularly for research that happens in the U.S. I think there's a there's a consensus that the pros of having single IRB review kind of outweigh the you know the, there are there are a few disadvantages of doing it that way, but but I think you know, I think the consensus is that that's you know that single IRB review is is a good thing and it helps investigators. Um, there. You know, there there are there are a number of other sort of regulatory burdens I think that investigators experience uh, aside from the IRB review, depending on the type of research they're doing. So, so I was mentioning just a second ago, federally funded research, right? So, federally funded research has a lot of you know, uh, uh, with the money that comes from the federal government, there are an awful lot of strings attached in terms of pre and post award compliance. And that can that can be a real burden on the investigator and on the institution where the investigator works. Um, and there's a lot of other, you know, there's uh, there's um, regulations pertaining to conflicts of interest and regulation. There's there's a there's a whole landscape here that goes obviously quite a bit beyond um, just the IRB. 
Um, and so, you know, the, 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 so, I mean, I think your question is, so what are we, what are we purchasing with all of this, um, with all of this regulatory compliance effort? You know, what are, what are we, what are we preventing? Um, there obviously has been a, 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 a history of a lot of abuse in terms of human subjects research, um, going back, you know, I think the, you know, probably a lot of people are familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis study, but there's there's lots of others that have involved the U.S. government. Um, the, the U.S. government actually ran a, um, a a study in Guatemala that was basically the same as the Tuskegee syphilis study that was recently acknowledged um, by the Obama administration. And there, I, I'm not saying it was done during the Obama administration. It was done. It was it was apologized for during the Obama administration. Um, but but there have been lots of other um, examples of the U.S. government and 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 more recently of private actors in engaging in questionable research practices. Um, now I, I think that because of regulation, a, a lot of the most egregious abuses have have stopped or have decreased significantly. Um, there have there have been a few cases even re, even in the 2000s of universities doing you know, things that are, are, are pretty bad. Um, but by and large, that has, that has stopped. Um, and, 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 and now I think what, you, what you're dealing with is, um, you know, smaller lapses in research ethics that are, you know, nothing like what you would have, nothing like the Tuskegee syphilis study, but are um, nevertheless things that we, you know, should be working to improve. Um, and it's not even, you know, a lot of these regulations aren't even just aimed at, at unethical research. They are aimed at ensuring um, uh, data integrity and product safety and things like that. For those who aren't familiar, I did some research before this talk about the Tuskegee study where people were infected with uh, syphilis uh, for the purpose of seeing what's the natural history. And at that time, there really wasn't much of a treatment. But when, uh, when penicillin became available, they didn't get it. And they weren't told right. it was available. And they were just, you know, let's just see what happens. So right. it was like, yeah. well, it was important, you know, kind of observational study from a scientific point of view. But given that the uh, subjects were not informed that a, that a treatment was now available for this uh, progressive infection, uh, really, uh, I think, unethical by anyone's standards. Yeah, and, we're, and, and even we're, we're, we're actively lied to about the nature of their condition ah. and what done about it. And, that, and, and I think, you know, you, you will probably know this better than I, I do, but I think penicillin became available in the, maybe in the 1940s. It was around um, the wartime. Yeah, and and the syphilis study went on into the early 1970s, and so this was not a brief period of time where they were doing this. <laughs> right now, I wonder. You know, I saw from your resume you have a lot of interest in uh, international work. Uh, personally, I've spent a lot of time in the Philippines doing uh, medical mission work, some scuba diving. Um, but I'm interested. Did you have you personally worked overseas? And, and then my other, you know, things tend to be a lot looser. You know, what we consider to be uh, ethical uh, often might be different, certainly in business practices, you know, in other countries. So uh, yeah. is that, can you address some of that? Yeah, so um, so actually I, I was living, I've li I lived overseas for the last seven years up until about the end of last year. 
Um, so I was living and working at an academic, at a Cornell University affiliated um, teaching hospital in the Middle East. Um, and I was there from uh, sort of early 2013 until, like I said, just the end of um, 2019. Uh, but I have, I have also done myself a great deal of work on behalf of clients um, in a number of countries around the world, but particularly in the developing world. And so I have spent a lot of time in, um, in a number of countries in Africa and Southeast Asia in particular, and some as well in, um, in Latin America and the Middle East, uh, doing work on behalf of clients. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to tie, I think it's a fascinating area. I'm happy to talk more about it. I mean, what, one of the, one of the areas where, I mean, just going back to your earlier question of, you know, do, do, do these research abuses continue? Um, I, like I said, I think that, I think that the, 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 the number and the, and the egregiousness of the abuses has dramatically decreased in the United States. Um, I think that, it is probably decreased in the developing world as well, but not on the same time frame. And so I think that you can find much more recent, fairly egregious abuses by you know very well-known U.S. pharmaceutical companies um, doing things in developing countries that they would not be able to do here because they because the, the regulations are not as clear. The even if even in some cases if the regulations are clear in a developing country, the enforcement mechanisms really aren't there and so forth. Uh, right. So do you have any experience with the Philippines? That's a country I know the most about or anybody, anywhere near there? Uh, Southeast Asia, yes, but not, not the Philippines specifically. I have not um, actually done work in the Philippines. What about research fraud? I mean, that's another issue where every now and then you read in the New England Journal that they withdrew the paper because the guy made up the data. I mean, it just seems just incredulous. You know, this whole autism thing, for example, it's based on a physician in the UK who just created this out of nothing and, you know, and it won't go away. So, I mean, research fraud is really uh, undermines legitimate research and it's dangerous. I mean, how how does it get that far? Yeah, I mean, so so um, the, there's actually a whole body of regulations in a, in a in a in an office within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services called the Office of Research Integrity that is, that oversees this when 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 you have federally funded research and their their term for this is scientific misconduct and and the scientific and but but you know really it's their definition of scientific misconduct is a fairly narrow definition of, of really clear abuses like um, uh, plagiarism and falsification and fabrication. And a lot of that, you know, I think one of the, one of the areas they're particularly concerned about is um, the manipulation of photos. And so, you know, enhancing the contrast of like part of an image and, and, and leaving the rest of it the way it is or, 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 stuff, or, or stuff that's even more obvious. Um, there are a number of what I would call, uh, you know, adjacent practices that are not, you know, active like plagiarism or, or, or making up data um, that are, you know, things like ghostwriting or not disclosing conflicts of interest or, you know, people, uh, you know, th this is not the, obviously a scientific term, but like cooking, cooking the data, right? I mean, so, you know, you know so selectively using data. So you're not making it up. You're not, you know, um, you're not 
you're not falsifying the data, but you are you are not presenting the full picture of the of the data that were developed during the research. Um, and those are, you know, they're the, the 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 policing mechanisms for that kind of stuff, particularly when it's not federally funded, are um, are, are really left to institutions and to journals, and 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 so it's often not caught until after the fact. But I mean, the the example you gave of 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 vaccines and autism is a is you know really highlights I think the the, the cost that this kind of behavior can have. And by the way, there there have actually been some. Um, there, there, there have actually been some empirical studies, um, survey research of, res you know, uh, sort of asking researchers, have you ever done anything like this on an anonymous basis? Or have you, have you, do you suspect a colleague of ever having done anything like this? And the numbers are, the numbers are pretty astounding. And so you get some, you know, something like around 2% of people admit to having done, having plagiarized or falsified data. Um, about it, like I, you know, I think the numbers were like a third of people suspect that, or maybe a quarter or a third of people suspect that a colleague has done it. Um, and so, you know, it's it's quite prevalent. And I think it just, it, you know, it speaks to the incentives that that people have to, um, you know, sort of publish or perish. Uh, let's talk for a minute about vaccines because today is uh, April seventeenth. This program won't air for a while. But of course, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 infection, and there's a lot of uh, energy being spent trying to urgently uh, develop a vaccine. Now, one of my concerns as a physician is that, uh, you know, it's going to be sloppy whenever you do things in a hurry. In the Philippines, for example, there's been a problem trying to develop the dengue vaccine where they uh, had one. But it actually made people worse because it wasn't yeah. as good as it ought to have been. Yeah, and, no, I know about that case. Yeah, and maybe they were in a hurry. So what's happening now? Say I want to make a vaccine. Okay, I've got a little, you know, my lab in the back room there, and I'm going to make a vaccine for this uh, for SARS two. What, you know, uh, what what papers do I have to file in order to get it approved? Right. So there are um, there are actually a lot of vaccine candidates out there now. I mean, I think the last time I checked, which is just a few days ago, there was over 100 vaccine candidates under investigation. Now, when I when I say that, I mean, you know, there's only there's a there's a single digit number that are in human clinical trials. Um, there are a whole lot more that are either under investigation in a lab or in sort of preclinical studies, which usually means animal models. Um, I mean, if you manage to make a vaccine in your in your uh, in, in in your in your in your basement, um, essentially what you have to do is you have to go to and you want to test it in humans. Um, you have to get what's called an IND, which is an investigational new drug application approved by the Food and Drug Administration. So they're going to request from you all sorts of um, you know if you want to test it in humans, they're going to look want to. Preclinical data. They're going to want manu good manufacturing practice data. Um, they're going to want, there's a whole raft of information they're going to want to see um, about this, about about the product it's, it's itself. You know how we know it's safe and what your investigation plan is for your phase one study. All right. Well, I just have one final question. I was reviewing your bio and I see that you graduated from Yale University. Uh, <laughs> as did I, although I suspect we weren't in the same class. And uh, then you graduated from Harvard Law School. 
So yes. the question is, which side, you know, of the uh, arena do you sit on for the Harvard-Yale game? Oh, uh, without question, it's Yale every time. All right. All right. So <laughs> go Bulldogs. Go I think Bulldogs. people have, you know, people, I think people just naturally have a lot more affinity for their, um, for their undergraduate institution than for, at least for their law school. I'll just put it that way. So Clint, how would, how would, so when I do get a little further with my uh, vaccine uh, production project, or if there are others who are really into this biomedical regulatory world, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, um, so you can find me on, so I work at a firm called Bassberry and Sims, um, and they have a, their website is bassberry.com. Um, it's spelled really just like it sounds. Uh, and you can find me on that website. And my email address is clint.hermis at bassberry.com. Well, Clint, this has really been uh, enlightening and I've enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on.